The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Odessa. The name itself is literary and mysterious. It comes from the ancient Greek word Odessos, which itself might have been a variant on Odysseus and his Odyssey, or a borrowed word meaning marine. Combining the two possibilities might give us the most poetic version, the city, like its name, conjuring up the waters of the Black Sea, a destination and home like the one Odysseus seeks, and an air of beautiful mystery. Odessa is in the news now as the possible site of an invasive force as Russian ships lurk off the coast, menacing, looking for an opportunity to strike. My understanding from military strategists is that it would be very difficult for them to successfully invade from there, given the firepower and resources they have. My understanding from a history of literature perspective is that it would be a shame if they try, or if they resort to bombarding the city from afar. Odessa is a pearl, the pearl of the Black Sea. It has a rich history, beautiful architecture, lush parks and gardens, a busy port. It is both hub and home. A million Ukrainians, tens of thousands of tourists and sailors before the war, at least. It was the south capital of the Soviet Union once upon a time. It's been called the humor capital. It's also one of the world's great literary cities. So many writers were from there or had a connection to the city or were inspired by it that they have built a museum to literature in a converted palace. The rumor is that Franz Liszt once played a concert there on the grand piano. It's a place where Europe and Asia meet. As the shelling rains down and we pray for an end to war, we celebrate the history of what is now under threat of being lost. The writers of Odessa, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I am Jack Wilson. I hope you're doing well, hanging in there, surviving, safe. We are all doing what we can. These are difficult times, difficult for the planet at large and for individuals too, macro and micro. It's the decade of the doom scroll. I did not think that 21st century would be worse than the 20th. I didn't think anything could compare. But with climate change and 9-11 and wars seemingly nonstop and hunger and misery everywhere, it seems like we start with a backdrop of pain and have only moments of pleasure rather than the other way around, which is what it should be. But we can at least find some sunflowers poking up in the fields, some beautiful yellow fields and blue skies, the songs of children and smiles of infants, and be hopeful as best we can. So let's do that now and here and try to have some smiles this episode. First, Let's start with some housekeeping. First of all, I know we promised an episode on Freud and literature. We're getting to that soon. People were putting it together. To be honest, I finished the one on Freud's life and needed to clear my thoughts. Where is my couch to lie down on? 
Where's my good doctor to unspool all my thoughts or listen while I unspool all my thoughts, my deepest and darkest secrets to freely associate and do the chimney sweeping as the her patient Anna O put it. I'm a Midwesterner, as Saul Bellow said, I take my lumps. I'm too busy sweeping our actual chimney. As it turns out, my wife found two ants in our basement, and we are taking apart our house brick by brick and reassembling it ant-free. You know me, I'm with Gary Schneider. He of the sneaky good haiku. Don't worry, spider, I keep house casually. But I can appreciate a good cleaning and a spray bottle full of vinegar and a clean fireplace, too. So on we go. Where was I? Freud, his impact on literature. We're bumping it back a bit so we can travel to Ukraine in spirit today and look at Odessa, which means a little Chekhov, which always lifts my spirits and lots of other people, too. Speaking of lifting my spirits, we're going to check in with our dear friend of the show, Margot Livesey, today. She's reading her way through Boswell's Life of Johnson. We will check in and see how that's going. And then we'll turn to Odessa and its writers. Odessa, I was in Moscow briefly, but I've never been to Odessa. It lives in my mind as the place to go to get better, a place of 19th and early 20th century therapeutic resorts. And from photos, I've seen that it has a more Mediterranean architecture than other cities on the Black Sea. The internet tells me it had a million residents before the war began. It's unclear how many it has now. A map shows me its neighbors, the nations that share the encircling of the Black Sea, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, Georgia, and of course, Russia. Odessa looks out on these waters. The Danube flows into it. And the Aegean does too. It, in turn, drains into the Mediterranean, the Black Sea. The battleship Potemkin was here with its mutinous crew. Chekhov, seeking respite from the tuberculosis that would take his life, traveled across its waters and had a house near its shore. Writing, quote, It was a soft, gentle mixture of blue and green, in some parts, the color of the water was like copper sulfate, while in others, it seemed that the moonlight had condensed and filled the bay instead of water. But what a harmony of colors in general! What a peaceful, calm, and sublime mood! End quote. Chekhov was not the only writer to discover the entrancing power of the Black Sea or the serene and lively literary culture of Odessa. It is, perhaps, like the literary culture of London as James Boswell descended from Scotland and met his hero, the giant who had written a dictionary and much else besides. Let's do that first and then return to Odessa after that. Margot Livesey reading Boswell's Life of Johnson, up next. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat is 
has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, here we go. Part three of our look at Livesey's Boswell's Johnson. We're joined by New York Times bestselling author Margot Livesey, author of The Flight of Gemma Hardy and The Boy in the Field, among many other works. Margot Livesey, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thank you so much. So let's jump into our look at Johnson and Boswell. In this one, I was hoping we could talk about Johnson as a lover of literature and author of the dictionary. How well does Boswell convey this to us? I think he does a marvelous job of showing how even from a very young age, Johnson was in love with language Mm -hmm. and a hugely omnivorous, curious reader. Um, Between school and university, he spent almost two years reading with the result that by the time he got to university, he was really better read than than many of his tutors, I think. And that lifelong love of reading um, obviously stood him in wonderful stead and in part brought him to the amazing idea of writing a dictionary. Yeah. He seems to have been able to read very quickly and retain everything. It seemed like it was uh, always at his command that he could recall what he read and, and almost as if it was indexed in his mind. Yes. No, it's an astonishing gift to the combination. And, of course, he was reading in Latin and Greek and English. Um, I'm not sure if he read European languages, but he was certainly aware of Voltaire and Rousseau. Yeah, right. So is there a particular passage that you'd point us toward to uh, emphasize just what a a great literary aficionado that Johnson was? Well, I was actually um, swerving slightly just to, to talk about how the how the dictionary came to yeah, came into being. Right, right. If what that's a story. All right. Yeah. The idea for the dictionary I think came to Johnson almost haphazardly, and then um, a number of booksellers um, agreed to support it. And he was paid, uh, he assured them he'd be able to write the dictionary in three years, (laughs) um, which of course did not come to pass, and was paid £1,575, which when I looked it up, the website I went to claimed would be 356,000 pounds in today's mm, terms. 
Right. Which is still not a, not a great deal when you consider that the dictionary took him six or seven years yeah. and he paid six amanuenses um, <laughs> to, to help him. Right. To organize, not to, to write, but to, to organize his scraps of paper and so forth. Yes, and and also to help with the etymologies and the definitions and ex- by example, mm. mm-hmm. I think. Because he talks about, I have a Welsh gentleman who has published a collection of Welsh pro- proverbs who will help me with the Welsh. <laughs> and, and there's a wonderful moment when... Um, Dr. Dr. Adams, finding him one day busy on his dictionary, asks about how long it's going to take. And Johnson says, I I have no doubt I can do it in three years. Adams says, but the French Academy, which consists of 40 members, took 40 years to compile their dictionary. Johnson, sir, thus it is. This is the proportion. Let me see. 40 times 40 is 1,600. As three to sixteen hundred, so is the proportion of an Englishman to a Frenchman. <laughs> um, I mean, the kind of Don Quixote-like ambition of, of of this of this quest. Yeah, right. And it's while he's in the middle of the dictionary that he find founds his um his own periodical, the Rambler, which he is the only writer of, um, and it comes out twice a week. And he also began a literary club, which met in Ivy on a, in a pub on Ivy Lane. Yeah, so it, that's one of the great things about that story too, is that it was delivered to a friend as if it were, you know, spontaneous. It wasn't a something that he had written up for an article of a, a joke he thought of or or anything like that. It it just it's such a the book is so full of this conviviality and this uh, this circle of people, and I think that's a big part of the fun. They're good company, aren't they, these literary figures? No, they're, they're wonderful company, and it's hard not to envy them. I mean, yeah. And there are, there are, I'm happy to say, a few women included. There's um, Johnson's wife, and then later there's Mrs. Thrale, and mm-hmm. then a number of other women are on a part of this circle, so it's not exclusively masculine. Yeah. Does 18th century literary London resemble the life that you're living as a 21st century novelist? <laughs> Do you feel any affinity toward these figures, or does it seem like a completely different world? What a great question. Um, well, I think one of the things that's uh, the things that feels different is that in America. Many, many writers have taken refuge in academia. Mm-hmm. And whereas I think in other countries, writers are living probably more like Johnson and his friends, which is sort of contract to contract and yeah. essay to essay. Right. Um, and rather wonderfully, I mean, Johnson manages to find his own version of academia because he goes on to get a pension yeah. for his work on the dictionary. and. Quite late in life, that um, that allows him to stop worrying quite so much about money. Right. So you see the difference that maybe when you and your colleagues, fellow writers, get together, it's in the setting of you maybe have just taught a class, you've done a workshop, you're visiting a campus, 
And the difference that you find is that in this literary London, they've just met with a publisher. They're waiting for their book to come out to see if they what the sales are like. So they know what the next project is they have to, to take on. They're starting up uh, periodicals. And they're basically looking for ways to earn a living through putting words onto paper. Yes, they're they're all in Grub Street, if you will. And I think also a good part of their lives, their communal lives occurred in public houses and and also walking. They were all great walkers. Mm. Yeah, right. And maybe it was a more centralized, I mean, I suppose there are parts of London today that feel like this for the right people or parts of Boston or or Brooklyn or something. But it does feel like we're a little more spread out and maybe you would go visit writers for uh, a weekend or you're there for a semester or something and maybe not as much, uh, you know, that they're just around the corner and you can see them at the pub. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, Margo, I feel like I sort of begged you to read Boswell. I hope I didn't bully you into it. At least I at least I didn't demand that you read the whole thing. But would you keep going at this point or have you had enough? Oh, no, I am absolutely planning to keep going. And I just want to add that one of the more enchanting things for me was after the dictionary is published, and I want to say um, 1755, people come to Johnson pointing out the mistakes and he's he's completely unabashed. Um, yeah. <laughs> windward and leeward are defined in exactly the same way. When a woman points out to him that he defines pastern as the knee of a horse, instead of making an elaborate defense, he at once answered, ignorance, madam, pure ignorance. <laughs> and, and in various other definitions, he allows his prejudices to show. And and he's very frank about that, and I, I thought that was just wonderful. Yeah. To have ambitions, you have to be prepared to make mistakes. And Yeah, right. You know, Johnson takes on big projects, um, tries all kinds of things. You know, he writes a play, he writes an essay, he writes criticism, he writes a dictionary, yeah. <laughs> he writes poetry, uh, you, you know. So, of course, he makes a lot of mistakes. That's right. Johnson... Both Johnson and Boswell have thick skins. Yes, yeah, and and I, I mean, I certainly need to lo- need to learn from that because, like like you, I tend to think, oh my God, I, I spelled Ballin Lewig wrong, and go to bed for the rest of the month. So. Yeah. <laughs> Margot Livesey is the author of The Boy in the Field, now available in paperback and many other wonderful books. Do check them out at bookstores near you. And by check them out, I mean purchase them in great quantities for you and all your friends. Margot Livesey, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. Um, Jack, thank you for bringing me belatedly, but at last, to Boswell and Johnson. I'm just so grateful. Odessa, 
dates back at least to the middle of the 6th century BC, when a large settlement of Greek traders lived there. In the Middle Ages, there were waves of nomads sweeping through the Mongols and the Turks and the Ottoman Empire, among others. Genoa took a turn, and Lithuania, and Crimeans. In the 18th century, Catherine the Great claimed the city for Russia when there were only a few thousand people living there. Over the next 200 or so years, that would climb to over a million people, but it was not always under Russian control. Odessa spent much of the first half of the 19th century as a free port, which helped give it an incredible variety of nationalities and languages, a true international flavor. Pushkin was there in exile for a couple of years in the 1820s. The air is filled with all Europe, he said. French is spoken, and there are European papers and magazines to read. The French aspect was helped along by a French governor, a duke who had fled the French Revolution and wound up in Catherine's army. He set the city on a more modern path, modernizing it with architecture and a layout and a plan. The place attracted, here's the list, ready? Albanians, Armenians, Azeris, Bulgarians, Crimeans, French, Germans, Greeks, Italians, Jews, Poles, Romanians, Russians, Turks, Ukrainians, and other nationalities too. Traders arriving in the port added themselves to the mix on a daily basis. There was a large Jewish community. By the end of the century, something like a third of the city was Jewish. The progress that Odessa was making was interrupted by that bizarre and horrible war, the Crimean War, a landmark of pointlessness and incompetence. French and British ships bombarded Odessa as part of the European realignment. These were the balance of power years in the 19th century. This is Alfred Lord Tennyson in the charge of the Light Brigade. That period. I know there are reasons given for the Crimean War and why it happened, but I tend to agree with the historians who call it a useless conflict that led to senseless tragedies. Odessa's growth resumed after that dumb war ended, helped along by the railroad connecting Odessa to Kiev. By the late 19th century, it had become a heavily touristed place, and here we see a lot of writers following Pushkin's footsteps. The beach, the panoramic views of the coast, the warm summer climate, the mild-by-comparison winters, the university and museums and music and parks and gardens, the ferries, and the bustling port, a daily injection of the latest news from abroad. All this helped to make Odessa a place to read, write, and recover. The poet Anna Akhmatova was born near Odessa, Ivan Bunin traveled through Ukraine in the first half of 1894 and wrote, quote, Those were the times when I fell in love with Malorussia, which is Little Russia, the name in Russian for Ukraine. Its villages and steppes was eagerly meeting its people and listening to Ukrainian songs, this country's very soul. In 1898, he moved to Odessa, became close to several painters who lived there. Jabotinsky, the writer and Zionist politician, lived and wrote in Odessa. Tolstoy passed through Chekhov, passed through four times, total of 16 days by some estimates. It's said that he spent half his paycheck on Odessan ice cream. 
Gorky watched the workers on the docks. Mayakovsky fell in love. Isaac Babel wrote his Odessa Tales, set in the city. He was born in, let's call it, a raffish district of Odessa, and he wrote about the Jewish gangsters who ruled the underworld in the early 20th century. Here's a sampling of Odessa's seedy underbelly in Babel's description. Seedy, but also kind of engaging. It's the world he describes. This comes when the chief gangster, a person known as the king, has a sister who's getting married. This is what her wedding was like. Quote, On that starry, that deep blue night, the noblest of our contraband, everything for which our region is celebrated across the land, did its destructive, seductive work. Wine from abroad warmed stomachs, broke legs in the gentlest way possible, numbed brains, and brought up a belching as sonorous as the call of a battle horn. The black cook from the Plutarch which had come in from Port Said three days earlier, smuggled in round-bellied bodies of Jamaican rum, oily Madeira, cigars from Pierpont Morgan's plantations, and oranges from the environs of Jerusalem. That's what the foamy surf of Odessa's sea washes ashore. That's what Odessa's paupers can hope to get their hands on at Jewish weddings. The gangsters, who sat in serried ranks, were at first put off by the presence of strangers, but then they loosened up. Leova the Ruski smashed a bottle of vodka over his beloved's head. Manya the gunner fired a shot in the air. End quote. Leone Ginsberg, do you remember him from our episode on Natalia Ginsberg? He was her very brave courageous husband during the rise of fascism in Italy. He was born in Odessa before emigrating to Italy. Nabokov's wife, Vera, who was Jewish, was born in St. Petersburg, but is often believed to be from an Odessan family. At any rate, she passed through Odessa as she fled. Poet Joseph Brodsky did the same. There are not that many cities that can stake as great a claim on writers. Writers have loved Odessa, and Odessa loves them back. There are statues and streets with familiar names, Pushkin Street, Bunin Street, and a literary museum. The museum counts 300 different writers associated with the city, those who were from there or who lived there or who at least visited, and some who wrote about the city having never seen it. Jules Verne was one. Arthur Conan Doyle was another. Odessa saw some tough times during the Soviet Union, the regime killed Isaac Babel, among many other tragedies. And although it was a KGB agent who set up the literature museum in Odessa, the museum also downplayed Babel's death, cut half his stories, gave him short shrift as a Ukrainian writer. Meanwhile, they loaded the place with Soviet literature, which, since the fall of the Soviet Union, has been minimized. And now, of course... It's not just the museum and not just the literature, but the entire city that is potentially under attack. One thinks of the people of Odessa with their rich and storied past and their tenuous present and hopes that Odessa will emerge from the current struggle as a place of multicultural literary flourishing once again, a place for writers, a pearl on the edge of the sea, salubrious 
and inspiring. A muse, a home, a place for humanity to live shoulder to shoulder, voice intermingling with voice, a place like the one Jabotinsky described in his work, The Five. Quote, In my childhood, chimneys and masts stuck up like a forest in all the harbors when Odessa was a queen. Later it became feebler, much feebler, but I want it the way it was in my childhood, a forest, and everywhere sailors, boatmen, and stevedores shouting to each other, and if you could hear it, you'd hear the best song of humanity, a hundred languages. End quote. Odessa was a queen. Let's hope the queen emerges with strength. Odessa the queen, long may she live. Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, a quick one. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Margot Livesey for being here. We will check in with her again. I hope Boswell is continuing to provide some comfort and some company. And fingers are crossed for dear and lovely Odessa. Let's add that to the world tour we're planning. Optimistically, this war will end hopefully soon, and we can help the Odessans and Ukrainians get back to life as it should be lived in peace and comfort and hope and love and literature. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.